on us. Good. <coughs> so I'm going to return to a familiar theme, and that is highlighting the parallels, unpacking even further the parallels between, between two very profound and very simple practices, the settling the mind in this natural state, and this mindfulness of breathing, as taught by Asanga. A really crucial point to understand before one even begins, if one is going fairly intensively into such practice, is that when it's going well, and you're practicing very authentically, with a good motivation, it's virtually never smooth sailing. That is, it's not to say you never have any pleasant sessions, of course you do. But you must anticipate that this is going to be stirring up all kinds of things from the psyche. That's what it's supposed to do. You can call it a kind of depth psychology, or a term I've coined, cognoscopy. If you go go into your intestines, don't expect to find flowers. And if you go into your mind, don't expect it's going to be a bed of roses. You find all kinds of things, not all bad, but do expect the unexpected. And in the book Stilling the Mind, uh, there's what's the real core of that is about the thir- first 30 pages of the Vajra Essence, highlighting primarily the shamatha and settling the mind as natural state. And Padmasambhava, the speaker, Dujum Lingba, this really the scribe, uh, or the Dekdona for this teaching. Um, he gives about two pages, a short list, of some of these nyam, or anomalous uh, experiences, somatic experiences, psychological experiences, that may very, very well be catalyzed by such authentic practice. And he refers to these as signs of progress. Well, some of them are simply awful. You know, There's a sense of paranoia, of misery, of grief, of nausea, and so forth and so on. He says, well, boy, if this is progress, how about... Can I have no progress, please? <laughs> you know. But they are signs of progress because of the context. Simply having paranoia, grief, sadness, <clears throat> rage, and so forth, that's not progress, they're just mental afflictions. But if you're practicing like that, if you're engaging in the practice authentically, and these are coming up, and you're aware of them without caught up, getting caught up and carried away by them, without the cognitive fusion, then in that context, these really are signs of progress. And you'll see it for yourself. This is not just, just advertising or propaganda here. You will see that, in fact, this is a process of purification. If you have a really dirty cloth and you put it into the water, you might be really, if you're a very silly person, you might be very dismayed that the water gets dirty. You know, but that's what's supposed to happen when you cleanse the cloth. The impurities come out and you get to see them. They may really stink. And so you hear this on the one hand, uh, that you know some very troublesome experiences, but they are transient, they are transient, they're anomalous. These troubling experiences in the body and the mind may very well arise, they almost certainly will. We hear this on the one hand, and then in the same text of Vajra, Vajra Essence, then Padmasambhava, the Lake Born Vajra, also says that if all you do is achieve shamatha, and then you, you stop, you just experience that and enjoy that, then, as he says, you have not moved one hair's breadth along the path to enlightenment. You're a real nowhere man. You're nowhere. Nowhere woman. Uh, and so then the question may, be, may arise quite, quite reasonably. If it's this troublesome, and if you still haven't reached the path, do we really need to go through that purging process? And this was a question that was raised in the Vajra Essence. It's there instilling the mind, but I would, just taking this one excerpt, uh, I think it's very, very juicy, very important. And so then, in this vision that, that Dujum Ling was having, with the Mantra Bhadra appearing in the center, surrounded by a circle of bodhisattvas, all of pure vision, then one of these bodhisattvas in the pure vision, named Boundless Great Emptiness, they all have very symbolic, archetypal names, not Jack or Fred, they have really cool names like Sophia that's a pretty cool name not many people get that you know you know, wisdom Tibetan a lot of, a lot of Tibetan girls are called wisdom Sherap Yeshe but you know most of our names like Alan yeah. it means rock <laughs> okay here's to you so then great boundless emptiness asked oh Bhagavan if all meditative experiences that's what he's referring to these nyam 
these meditative experiences, these, these transient, anomalous, psychosomatic experiences that are triggered by exactly such practice as this. If all meditative experiences, whether pleasant or rough, are far from being the path to omniscience, they don't, if, just they, if they don't bring you onto the path, and they bring no such benefit, they don't bring the benefits of the path, then why should we practice meditation? Specifically, if this type be just taught, settling the mind as natural state, or taking the mind as the path. Teacher, please explain. The Bhagavan, who is the lake-born Vajra, in this visionary experience, this pure vision, the Bhagavan replied, O Vajra of mind, that's his nickname. It's nice to have a nickname, Vajra of mind, but again, rather symbolic. O Vajra of mind, when individuals with coarse, dysfunctional minds, agitated by discursive thoughts, enter this path. Okay? It resonates, yeah? When you enter this path, this path of shamatha, of taking the mind, the impure mind, the mind you have, as your path, when they enter this path, by reducing the power of their compulsive thinking, their minds become increasingly still and they achieve unwavering stability. On the other hand, even if people identify conscious awareness, and conscious awareness in the context is rikpa, and it's, but it's interesting, conscious awareness, isn't that redundant? I mean, awareness, rikpa, is rikpa, but when he says conscious awareness, you already have rikpa. You're not going to get it one day. But right now, you may very well not be conscious of your rikpa, because it's veiled by all kinds of other stuff, five obscurations, delusion, self-grasping, reification, and so on. So yeah, you already have rikpa. But is your rikpa, are you conscious of your rikpa? And so conscious awareness is what he's highlighting here, the conscious identification of your own pristine awareness. So even if people identify conscious awareness, conscious rikpa, but do not continue practicing. They don't sim- then simply rest in that and sustain that flow of cognizance of rikpa. If they don't do that, they will succumb to the faults of spiritual sloth and distraction. This is a very familiar, very, very familiar theme. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's very common in Zen. That people have a very profound breakthrough. It's authentic. It's real. And then it passes. It becomes a memory. You know, it happens in Dzogchen, Mahamudra, and if you look outside the Buddhist context, you're going to find it elsewhere as well. The breakthrough is real. It's powerful. It's the most meaningful experience you've ever had, and then it's a memory. And then you wonder, what can I do to get it back? And then you set out grasping, grasping, clinging, wishing, desiring, trying, and, and walking backwards. And so they will succumb to the faults of spiritual sloth and distraction. Then, even if they do practice, due to absent-mindedness, that is... They haven't cultivated the shamatha, the shamatha, the stability of mind to be able to sustain that awareness. And because they haven't, even if they do go back to practice and try to simply rest in rikpa, what happens? Even if they do practice, they try to rest in rikpa due to absent-mindedness, they'll become lost in endless delusion. The mind which is like a cripple and vital energy, the prana, which is like a blind wild stallion, are subdued by fastening them with the rope of meditative experience and firmly maintained attention. So I found this so fascinating. He's given a complete explanation already of taking the mind as a path. Exactly how do you do it? And what are some of these signs of, signs of progress that come up? And how do you deal with those? And what type of signs arise for one type of person? A fire person, a wind person, and so forth. And so he explains all of that. And then he comes back to awareness and the prana of mind and breathing. And so in this regard, the mind is like a cripple. So what you can, you can easily imagine, this is easy. You have a stallion, a great powerful horse, who's blind, which has a lot of power, but then he's just running into stuff all the time. And then the cripple has very good eyesight, but can't move. And so, but you place the cripple on the, on the back of the stallion, and then you have something that's quite workable. Because the cripple will guide the horse, and the horse will empower the cripple. And so your mind is aware. Your prana isn't aware. Your prana is not a sentient being. Your prana is not aware of anything. But it's very powerful. Just look at the martial arts. Look at qigong. Look at, oh, I have myself seen some very impressive displays of prana. It's powerful. I mean, it's the energy of life. But it's blind. 
and it can be, and is frequently, dysfunctional within the body, all caught up, constricted, bound, and, and not flowing where it should be, right through the central channel. So put those two together. Let the, let the rider of your mind mount the great stallion of your prana, do so with mindfulness and firmly maintained attention. In other words, I think that's called mindfulness of breathing, as taught by a sangha. Right? So do that. And let your mind be subdued in that way by fastening the mind and the prana with the rope of meditative experience and firmly maintained attention. Once people of dull faculties have recognized the mind, let alone recognizing rigpa, simply really come to know the mind, recognize the mind. Once they've recognized the mind, they control it with the cords of mindfulness and introspection. That's how you subdue, just again, like a wild horse. You subdue the wild horse of your prana, the wild horse of your mind together with such training of mindfulness and introspection. Consequently, as a result of their meditative experience and meditation, they have the sense that all subtle and coarse thoughts have vanished. So that's when you, your mind, your, the space of the mind subsides into the substrate. Your mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness. They've all vanished. All appearances have vanished. Coarse and subtle thoughts have vanished. And then finally they experience a state of unstructured consciousness devoid of anything on which to meditate. A substrate consciousness. Okay. There's not any object you're latching onto. But now, in a manner of speaking, poetically, you're just right next door. There's not much between you, and all these words are misleading, but still use them. There's not, when you're resting in the substrate consciousness, there's not much between you and Rikpa. It's not the same, but it's a stone's throw away. You know? That's what you need to break through. That's what you cut through. You cut through your substrate consciousness to Rikpa. You cut through the substrate to Dhammadhatu. So you're resting there then, when there are awareness then, so there's a sequence here. So finally, there was the end of the, end of the road of taking the mind as a path. Your, path. your mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness. And again, people who go look back background just don't have any qualms here. It's substrate consciousness is simply referring to the subtle, continual mental consciousness, which all Galupas affirm, and all Prasanga Majamikas affirm. But now on the basis of that, you've achieved shamatha, your mind, you're now dwelling in, in the subtle mind, then, when their awareness reaches the state of great non-meditation, now you're cutting through. Non-meditation, great non-meditation, is cutting through, cutting through to rikpa, or the innate mind of clear light. Their guru points that out. So assures them, yes, now you're cutting through. This is it. So they do not go astray. So there's a whole... He just wrapped up the whole path in, in a paragraph. Okay? But that's why you go through these stages of difficulty. Because if you skip things, I don't want to do that. I just want rikpa. Please, rikpa, rikpa, rikpa. Yeah, maybe you can get a taste of rikpa. There are a number of lamas that get very, very fine pointing out instructions. You may be able to receive them. Now, can you sustain it? If not, you've just had a rikpa holiday. Not much more. For that to occur, to follow that sequence of recognizing your mind, subduing your mind, dissolving your mind, resting in the substrate, cutting through the substrate consciousness, for that to occur, first one undergoes great struggles in seeking the path. Frank, I don't know how many people are really seeking the path nowadays. I'm a little bit dubious. <laughs> you know? Even if they're practicing Dharma. I don't know. Are they really seeking the path? Does that actually mean something? Or do they think they're already on the path just because they're doing daily practice, maybe even going to one-month retreat, three-year three year retreat, going to Vipassana retreat? Oh, this is good. I have no criticism. But is, how many people really have a clear sense of seeking a path? I don't know. I, I, there's my answer. I don't know. But this is what his teachings are all about. And you may go through a lot of difficulties in seeking the path, finding a teacher who, who can lead you on the path, point out the path, lead you on the path. So first one undergoes great struggles in seeking the path. One takes the movement of thoughts as the path. You know that. Now that's taking the mind as a path. And finally, when consciousness settles upon itself, that is identified as the path. Until unstructured awareness or consciousness of the path manifests and rests in itself, 
So until you're resting in Rikpa, unstructured awareness or consciousness, that's Rikpa. That's the path Rikpa. There's the ground, path, and fruition Rikpa. This is the path Rikpa. Right? Well, until that arises, because of the perturbations of one's afflicted mind, one has to gradually grow, go through rough experiences like the ones discussed. So I think he just answered the question. Right. So here we are. We're following exactly what he said. I think we all have some background in taking the mind as a path. But it's kind of coming back to this practice of mindfulness breathing. It's kind of coming back and laying a foundation for that. Because when all is said and done, we are embodied. For the time being, we are embodied. And it's very easy, I find especially in Buddhist practice, very easy to kind of overlook the body. You know, because it's mind, 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 you know, and overlook the body. Uh, but as Gautama himself found out during his years of asceticism, that turns out to be not such a great idea, that the body has to be incorporated into one's practice. And here it is very explicitly. So in this practice of attending to the breath, attending to the sensations of the breath, and the Sangha was pointing out in particular, it's the, the sensations, the flow of prana from the nostrils down to the navel chakra. So it's clearly not the bre- air, because the air is just flowing down to the lungs. That's way up here. But the prana is flowing right down here. right? And that's the course. That's, that's really the, the primary locus. You can be peripherally aware of the sensations of prana throughout the rest of the body, even through the pores as you go subtler and subtler. But the primary focus there is in this, in this, this trajectory here, from the nostrils down to the navel chakra. Now, some people, when teaching mindfulness of breathing, said your, your awareness should merge with the breath, kind of an, have, a, have a non-dual experience with the breathing. Uh, that's not this tradition. That's not this tradition. But rather, let your awareness rest in stillness and not have a fusion, not have a sense of identity or unity with emotion so that your awareness is totally in motion with the, with the breath that is in motion. That would be a non-duality. That's not it. Not this practice. Somebody else can practice that. That's fine. Not this one. This is stillness in motion. It's stillness in motion. It's everywhere. Stillness in motion. Let your awareness be still and experience the movements of the prana, the movements of the prana corresponding to the breath, but without the cognate fusion. One comment again from the Vajra Essence. It's a treasure trove. It's an unbelievable amount of riches in that one text. But I think, I believe it's there. That it stayed, it's that uh, Padmasambhava st- uh, says of the substrate consciousness, that the substrate consciousness illuminates appearances, but it does not enter into them. That's actually quite crucial. Illuminates, but does not enter into them. When we get ca- caught in rumination, in wandering thoughts, so we're just thinking about somebody, and there's cognitive fusion. I'm thinking about this person. I'm thinking about this person. Then the mind goes to that object. It attends to that object. It, the awareness fuses with the mental process that brings you to the object. That's okay. But that's your mind activated. Whereas the process here is to approximate or to move in the direction of resting in the substrate consciousness and viewing from that perspective. And so it is simply resting there. And a final point, again the parallel. All of this become clear just recently. Um, the parallels in that is. And that is, you all know that in the practice of taking the mind as a path, fundamental distinction between that and simply mind-wandering, daydreaming, is that in mind-wandering and daydreaming, your awareness, as soon as there's a thought arises, the awareness is coupled with it, and it moves off to the referent of the thought, the memory, the desire, and so forth. And so you're thinking about a person or recalling an event from the past. It's going off to that. Hmm. So that's fine, that's called thinking. It can be conscious thinking, it can be semi-conscious daydreaming, rumination, and so forth. But in the practice of taking the mind as a path, you don't do that. There's no cognitive fusion. So you're not attending to people or events in the past or events in the future that might happen. But rather you're tending only to that which is arising here and now in the space of your own mind. And these are appearances, thoughts, desires, and so forth, in and of themselves, that is, just as they are. As the Buddha said, in the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived, without going to the referent of the activities of the mind. Right? Well, I would say, that's just classic teaching, that's straight. Here's an interpretation, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's, it's okay. 
and that is in this practice, we're attending to just the sensations, right? Just the somatic sensations uh, of the movements of prana within the body. We're not thinking about the body. We're not conceptually designating the body. We don't actually have to conceptually designate the breath. As the Buddha said in that same discourse to Bahia, when he concluded by saying, in the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived, when it came to the somatic field, he said, in the felt, let there be just the felt. In the seen, let there be just the seen, and the heard, just the heard. And so in each of these cases, keep, keep it primal. Keep it primal, what is from moment to moment to moment, what is reality dishing up without your overlaying upon it these appearances, your conceptual designations, your labels, your categories, and your objectification that, oh, that's a sound of a bird. That's the feel of my knee. That's a thought about my mom, and so forth. There's nothing wrong with any of that, but that's not what we're doing in this practice, right? And so in this practice, I would suggest, in a way parallel, to the taking the mind as a path. There you're simply observing the appearances, the sensations, if you like, arising in the space of the mind, and just looking at them without associating with them with anything else. And likewise in this practice, in this close application of mindfulness to the sensations of the prana corresponding to the flow of the respiration, you're simply attending to those sensations without grasping onto them as sensations of the breath, as sensations of the body, as, as anything at all, just spot on. Be aware of them as they are. So in this way you could see, you maybe you could imagine, how if you're doing this, and you're not kind of holding in the back of your mind, body, body is breathing, I'm attending to my breathing, and so forth, that conceptual grid, if you're loosening that, and keeping it just here and now with whatever's being presented in terms of these perturbations, these fluctuations, these immediately experienced sensations, that you might be able to imagine a little bit how you could follow that trajectory and continue following that, following the rhythm even long after you're aware of the body at all. Because number one, it's a, it's a true statement, unequivocally true, that in, the, in a dream, you can be aware of the rhythm of your body, of the body lying in bed, even though you have no tactile awareness of your body lying in bed. You have no awareness of the sensations of your body lying in bed when you're in the midst of a dream. If you have any sensations of a body, it's of your body in the dream, but that's not a physical body. That's purely mental. And yet there it is. I mean, it's so I find fascinating that if you're practicing mindfulness of breathing in a dream, you can't do that. Noting breath, long breath, short breath, and so forth, you can do that. And you are, in fact, attending to the same rhythm of the, of, the, of, the, of the breath of your body lying in bed, even though you have no experience whatsoever of your body lying in bed. By way of one, you are tracking the other because of the correlation. That's already interesting that you're out of the tactile realm, and yet you're aware of a rhythm that is occurring unbeknownst to you in the tactile realm, that is in your body, lying in bed. So final point then. If you're settling the mind in its natural state, and you're simply having a lot of emotions come up, and desires, thoughts, and memories, and that's it, and you're just experiencing all of them, just, oh, then you have this big emotion here, and that a big emotion there, and then you want this, and you remember that, and so forth. That's not meditation, that's just called hanging out with your mind. Just doing the same old, same old, right? Nothing special there. You don't need any special posture. You've already been doing that for a long time. And so in this practice, similarly, in this mindfulness of breathing, you're bound to pick up. If you start going into this, start expecting, maybe from day one, that some of the somatic experiences are not going to be so pleasant. Right? Eruptions occur, upheavals occur, nyam occur, and they can occur early. And that's because there are already all these blockages, these knots and so forth in the body, and you may get introduced to these early on. Right? If all you do is experience them, you know, you're mindfully breathing in, mindfully breathing out, and then, boy, this sucks. Oh, my body's uncomfortable. Breathing in, it sucks. Breathing out, it sucks. Oh, I don't like this. Oh. 
oh, this is so tight, oh, this is heavy, oh, well, what's the whole point? You don't need to meditate for that. You just go walk around and feel, have, feel bad all on your own. You don't need any instruction from me. Because what you're doing is the same old, same old. It's a cognitive fusion. My body, my feelings, my, my, my. I wish this would go away. I thought meditation was supposed to be fun. Everybody else is having fun. What about me? You know. So then you're just doing the same old thing. It's just like daydreaming. The corresponding is just daydreaming. So let's bring some wisdom to this practice. And here it is. It's a familiar refrain, but now in the context of mindfulness of breathing. As you're resting there in the still of your awareness, whatever's coming up somatically, let it be. And the challenge here, and I know perfectly well what a big challenge this is, whatever's coming up in the field of body, attend to it without preference. You can't do that if you're identifying with it. But if you release the identification, then whether it's unpleasant or it's pleasant, it is what it is. And just let it be an orphan. Let it just be arising and passing of its own accord, just like memories, thoughts, emotions, and so forth in the mind. Somatic experiences, let them come and go. And you're getting into the flow of this. When you can simply be resting there in the stillness of your awareness, aware of these fluctuations of the breath, but also the surrounding field of what's arising somatically throughout this field. And resting there without preference. Without wishing the unpleasant feelings would go away. Without hoping for, anticipating, maybe some bliss will come one of these days. I hope the breath slows down. I hope the breath speeds up. I hope the breath gets rhythmic. I oh, stop. That's it. Stop. And let the body sort itself out. This is what's preventing the body from sorting itself out. All the grasping, the clinging, the hoping and fear, all of that permeated by anxiety. How's that going to work out? And likewise, when one is aware of the mind, oh, I hope these memories don't come any, oh, I had a bad dream last night, I hope that doesn't happen, oh, 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 oh. Again, Vajra Essence says, look, this is just the nature of the mind. There are good days and bad days. And Arya Bodhisattva probably has good days and bad days. You know, in terms of stuff happening to him or her. Good days and bad days. You know? So get used to it. But don't let that define your practice. Rest in the stillness. And there's the path to liberation. Okay, that's what came up today. <coughs> so now I can talk very little for the actual session. <coughs> Better turn the feet in the opposite direction. This afternoon we'll turn to the fourth of the four measurables of equanimity, so let's apply this, this aspiration, the the even-mindedness, the impartiality, the inner calm and equipoise of the mind, free of the diversions and imbalances of craving and aversion. With this mindset, let's enter into the practice, letting the awareness descend into the body and settle body, speech, and mind in the natural state.
Then resting your awareness in stillness, awareness holding its own ground, resting in its own place. Let it illuminate the space of the body and selectively attend to those fluctuations, those sensations corresponding to the flow of the breath. Sustaining a non-conceptual flow of cognizance, noting the duration of each in and out breath, whether it's long or short. Arousing and focusing the attention with each in-breath, relaxing or loosening up with every out-breath. Single-pointedly focusing on these sensations of the respiration, such that whatever thoughts or other mental events arise, as they arrive, arise of themselves, let them dissolve away of themselves without intervention, without catching your attention. Let them slip on by, leaving your awareness unperturbed, unmoving. And let's continue practicing in silence.
Yasu. Enjoy your day.